Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear from an astronaut and physician about how space affects human physiology. Back pain is very common. Uh, over 50% of astronauts get what we call space adaptation back pain, and that happens as a result of the unloading of the spine and probably stretching of the, the ligaments between the, the vertebrae. We'll explore how a genetic understanding of a person's cancer is helping to provide better, more precise health care. All different types of cancers now have companion diagnostics, and it's growing in an enormous rate. Then we'll learn how linguistics relates to health care cases of trauma, some kind of impaired communication, linguists can provide you a quite a bit of, you know, the insights of the way the mind is working. All that in a selection from our Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about how precision medicine is helping some cancer patients. Then we'll learn about the connection between linguistics and healthcare. But first, we'll hear from a physician astronaut about medical issues that may arise during spaceflight. Our guest today is one of the nation's few specialists who is duly trained and certified in both internal medicine and aerospace medicine. Dr. Michael Barrett has participated in two space flights, and he currently serves as an active astronaut at NASA at the Johnson Space Center. Um, he's on the Upstate campus to speak about physiology and space flight, so thank you for making time to speak with HealthLink. It's a pleasure to be here, Amber. Thank you. So what does space do to human physiology? <laughs> well, it's, so, it's I know actually, it's a long answer. but you know, It's a small question with a, with a huge answer, but it's really quite an interesting one. You know, the, the human is, is designed to function very well in a 1G environment, as we call it, 1G being the force of gravity on Earth. But people think about that as kind of a, a static gravity field, when in reality, the body changes its direction to that gravity vector Many times each day, we lie down, we sit up, we stand up, and we're very active uh, in, in moving our postures around. And the physiology that has to protect the, the body, the brain, keeping the blood flow up, keeping the, the blood flow to the kidneys and whatnot, during all of those challenges against gravity is, is really quite amazing. And being in space where you remove all that gravity has, has caused us to really appreciate how amazing we are uh, to be able to handle all the challenges that we have with respect to gravity on the ground. So when you get into space and you take away that dominant force of gravity, all of a sudden everything is equaled out. The forces on your, um, your spine, the forces on your musculoskeletal system, the forces on your blood column are now equal. And there is no up or down. So you can't lie down, sit up or anything. All of those forces are, are kind of nullified throughout your body. And that causes some changes that are highly adaptive, but, but not very comfortable. Now, one of the first things we see when we get into zero gravity is that our sense of balance is totally challenged. And we have our own version of seasickness, if you will. We call it space motion sickness. And so for the first 48 hours, you can feel pretty lousy being in, in zero gravity. Now, all of a sudden, there is no definitive up or down. There's no horizon that has any meaning. 
and uh, you don't feel the pressure from your feet telling you this way is down, this way is up. So it can be very disorienting and it can really cause some, some issues. And uh, so, but you get through that after a couple of days and then um, you have other things that, that go on that are a little bit more long-term. Now, one thing is that you unload your musculoskeletal system so that if you don't exercise hard each day in weightlessness, uh, you will become very weak and uh, your bones will actually start to thin out, sort of like osteoporosis. So we have to load that every day with two and a half hours of exercise. And uh, your heart and your vascular system change formidably, as, as does your, your brain and, and uh, visual system, as, as we've now known. How do you exercise without gravity? Great question. Uh, you, you actually have to artificially load yourself so that you're on a treadmill. Uh, typically, we'll use bungee cords or some elastic device, which gives us a little bit of bounce, but it holds us down to the treadmill. Huh. We have a resistive exercise machine like a universal gym. And if you get under that bar, that actually holds you in place very nicely. But you need those really big loads to, uh, to work against to keep your muscles and bones up. Interesting. Um, what about in terms of um, mental state? Has, has there been research looked at um, for the well, impact sure. of... So we, we look at psychology very seriously and very carefully. And when people think about spaceflight, uh, they think, I think, correctly about someplace that's remote and novel and physically challenging where you're in a very small space with a lot of under, uh, other individuals where the demands are high, uh, the the pressure to succeed is high, the consequences of mistakes are, are high, and things could go south very quickly. So uh, we do spend a lot of time thinking about psychological factors, and that's that translates into how we select people, how we train people, how we train people as individuals and as crew, uh, and we've learned a lot. Now, one thing I'll tell you is that being on the space station is uh, is a challenge in and of itself, but it's nothing like going to Mars. When you're in low Earth orbit, you are with um, some of your closest friends, uh, hopefully they're your closest friends, and you're doing very interesting work every day, and you have real-time communication with the ground. So they're talking to you as if they're just in the next room helping to guide you through experiments. And you can have real-time conversations with your family. I called my wife every day when I was on space station. Wow. But if you are on your way to Mars, um, the work is not so interesting because you are mostly in transit. And you're, you're doing your exercise to maintain your body and your ship, but you're not doing interesting experiments all the time. And very importantly, uh, you do not have real-time communication because of the the calm delay, as we call it, uh, radio waves only travel at the speed of light. And at uh, Mars's closest approach to Earth, that's about eight minutes, one direction to get a radio signal there. And it could be as much as 22 minutes. So the concept of real-time conversation with family, friends, co-workers on the ground is, is totally gone. And invariably, your spacecraft will be quite a bit smaller than what we have on the International Space Station. And, of course, uh, instead of looking out the window and having this panoramic view of Earth, being able to instantly recognize familiar places, uh, that will be gone. So the level of remoteness will be ratcheted up considerably. Wow. Is it anything at all like the movie? <laughs> well, we which movie? You know, I think uh, uh, the NASA community is, is full of movie geeks, right. and uh, we all have our own scoring system, a rating system for movies. Some of them are quite good, and uh, we think that The Martian was, was very the good. The Martian. Neat. Yeah. Well, um, I'm sorry. Let me, Alyssa, I'm sorry. I had a question I was going to ask. Here it is. I'm sorry. I thought you didn't hit go. record or something. Yeah. 
So what can you tell us about the um, NASA's twin study? Um, astronaut Scott Kelly spent a year in space while his brother Mark Kelly was on Earth. Right. So interestingly, when uh, I was running the human research program for the space agency in 2012, and we started talking about doing a one-year flight, uh, basically a NASA astronaut and a Russian cosmonaut, to do kind of a pilot study to look at what would be the effect on the human body if you actually flew them for the amount of time it would take to get to Mars or to get to Mars and back in deep space cruise, which means weightlessness, basically. And we thought that it would be a good idea to do that at about middle of the way, about midway through our research portfolio for the station to be a pilot project, to give us an idea if we're moving our research in the right direction. Most of our missions were just six months in duration, and the question is, are we missing things beyond that six month that would be important to us? So we chose Scott Kelly and Mikhail Kornienko from the Russian side uh, to do these flights. Now, both were veteran flyers. We had uh, full confidence in their ability to, to handle the mission. Both were very enthusiastic to do it. But uh, as we started formulating the joint science program, uh, the U.S.-Russian scientists all, all getting together, figuring out how we would best capitalize on this mission. You know, we, we all knew that uh, Mark or Scott had a twin, which is Mark Kelly, of course, and he was one of our astronaut community as well. Um, and normally when you're doing twin studies, you want to do sets of twins so that the numbers are meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're more than a stunt. They're, they're something that has statistical significance. But in the case of genetics, genomics, the new tools we have, they give you a very sharp knife to kind of dissect the findings that you see. They give us powerful tools that make a, a single twin study, especially with such novel environments differentiating the two, meaningful. So we, with that, uh, assembled a team of uh, 10 genetics and genomics researchers, uh, really top of the line, who came down and said, these are the kinds of experiments we would like to do that we think would, would uh, pay off big as far as results go. And uh, so we did that. We, we formed a twin study, which was really a secondary thing, but became quite a big focus for us in the one-year flight. Interesting. Uh, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with physician and astronaut, Dr. Michael Barrett. Um, well, I wanted to ask you about the differences between regular medicine and aerospace medicine. Right. Well, every, uh, every medical field has its own set of issues and problems that it works on, and, and certainly aerospace is one of those. Uh, unlike a lot of other specialties, terrestrial cardiology or pulmonology or whatnot, we are still very much trying to define our problems in the space world. We've been flying for a few decades, but we've flown so few people that we are still very much in a discovery phase. So we have a set of issues that we work with, certainly in the space medical world, that helps us to identify the biggest medical problems and to optimize performance uh, in those environments. Because we do know that we want to fly in space. We've made the decision we're going to explore. We're going to expand into the solar system and hopefully further at some point. So identifying those problems, those include, I mentioned the space motion sickness, problems with balance, but there's also cardiovascular deconditioning that goes on because the, the heart doesn't have to pump against gravity uh, all day long. And, and uh, really it deconditions in a way, the musculoskeletal degeneration that we talked about that demands lots of exercise. But there's other more subtle changes on the immune system, for instance, and the system that regulates fluid volume in your body, mm -hmm. the 
kidney, how the kidney functions um, and how blood circulates uh, that are also quite radically changed. And it's a question for us how much of that is just adaptive and how much of it might be maladaptive or pathological, if you will. Now, some of these things are, are just fine while you're in space, but they bite you when you come back. Um, we have other things that are a little bit more sinister, though, radiation being the big one. When you're up in uh, low Earth orbit, you get a lot of radiation, solar radiation, and uh, some, as we call it, galactic cosmic radiation. But even there, you're shielded below our geomagnetic fields. Once you get away from those shields, going to the moon, going to Mars, then you are exposed to the, the full force of galactic cosmic rays, and we worry about cancer risk and sometimes solar flares that, that might cause acute radiation syndromes. And another big item that we have come aware of is, uh, we call it a neuroophthalmic syndrome, which involves the brain and the visual system. And we see a constellation of issues, which include changing of shape of the eye, uh, swelling of the optic nerve, distension of the optic nerve sheath itself, um, we've Are seen, those permanent changes? Well, so some of them tend to regress when people get back to the ground, but not all. And, huh. uh, and I will tell you that my eye is permanently remodeled uh, after spaceflight. And uh, in some people, we've actually seen high intracranial pressure. So we have this set of medical problems that's very much tied to the specific environment that we need to understand so that we can optimize human performance in these environments and, again, expand outward. Um, I was going to ask, where do you do a residency for aerospace medicine? Is so it that has changed throughout the years. I did my residency at the Wright State University uh, program in Dayton, Ohio, uh, which is in partnership with NASA and the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Now, unfortunately, that program is in the process of closing, so a lot of us are very sad about that. We have a program at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, which works very closely with the Johnson Space Center. Um, we are also starting to train residents at, at Baylor College of Medicine, and the um, Mayo Clinic has a, a program. The biggest consumer of the aerospace specialty is actually the military, the Department of Defense. Yeah, I imagine. So the uh, School of Aerospace Medicine uh, remains at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and we actually work quite closely together. And, of course, their big concern is more high-performance aircraft really big G loads, where we're talking small G loads in, in weightlessness. Okay. But it's a very tight community. Um, what sorts of medical emergencies are astronauts equipped to handle on their own in space? That's a really good question. So for low Earth orbit, we are, are governed by the rule of proximity, which means we're close. So that if somebody really got sick, we would want to bring them home as quickly as we could. And we can do that. We can actually be home within a few hours. It's not a comfortable ambulance ride. Uh, you have to pop into the little Russian Soyuz and and go through a high G entry and land in the middle of Kazakhstan and, and be transported. But nonetheless, um, we don't want to do anything up there that we could potentially do down here. So we don't have, for instance, surgical capabilities up there or prolonged acute, in uh, acute care or intensive care. What we can do is respond to emergencies as first responders. So everybody, every mission has crew medical officers trained at least to a paramedic level. So we have a fairly substantial first aid kit, but we also have a defibrillator. We have a portable transport ventilator. We can do airway management, and uh, we can actually do a lot of things that a paramedic would be able to do once they first arrive on your door and get you ready to ship to the hospital. Well, I also wanted to ask about um, infectious diseases. and mm -hmm. Because you're in a confined space with other people, does that make you more at risk or less because you're not around anyone other than those people? Well, so the answer is yes to both. 
Now, we, we quarantine everybody before they go to the space station. So for two weeks, you have very limited access to people. You certainly can't just interact with the general public. And anybody you do come into direct contact with has to be medically screened uh, for infectious disease. So that is a program that has served us fairly well. So when people go up there and live in this small environment, they try or they, they tend not to share things because we don't bring things. Now, that has failed uh, just on a couple of occasions in many decades of spaceflight. So mostly that's a testament to how well it works. But I happened to be up there at one time when it didn't work, and a visiting crew brought a respiratory virus, a common cold, if you will. But I can tell you that the common cold is anything but common in zero gravity, and there's no gravity-assisted drainage of congestion. I mean, your head feels like it wants to explode. And a lot of our crew got this because we were in such small confines. So uh, it tells you that those, those factors are at work and they're real. You're going to share things when you're living so close together. Uh, and you really do need to be strict on your quarantine before people go. How do you fight the cold in space? I, I mean, you've got tissues and... It- yeah, well, it's, uh, I, I'll, I'll have to let the, the listeners use their imagination a bit. But because we don't have any gravity, uh, sometimes we can induce a half a second of artificial gravity by swinging things in an arc. And uh, if you swing around the monkey bars, so to speak, from your arms uh, as you're, you're moving, you can actually get a little bit of gravity, artificial gravity, from the top of your head to the bottom of your head. And a little bit goes a long way. Um, otherwise, standard medications tend to work. Uh, decongestants uh, were, were very helpful and pain meds. And, and you're just going to feel lousy for a few days, just like on the ground. Well, very interesting. Well, I appreciate you being here. My guest has been Dr. Michael Barrett, a physician and astronaut who is on the Upstate campus to give a lecture. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, healthcare based on a genetic understanding of a person's disease on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you've heard the term personalized medicine or precision medicine, you may have thought such individualized treatment based on a genetic understanding of a person's disease was in the far-off future. And while there's still a lot to learn about this new approach, there's a lot that's already happening. Here to tell us more is Dr. Jeffrey Ross, the Jones-Rohner Professor of Pathology and Urology at Upstate. He's also the Medical Director for Foundation Medicine Incorporated in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome and thanks for being here. Thank you very much and hello everyone. (laughs) Well, let's look at precision medicine as it relates to someone with cancer. Um, So how does this work in this new era? In the new era, it's a complete paradigm shift. Instead of the one-size-fits-all approach and the sequential use of drugs based on the performance of the previous regimen, now we want to give each patient a custom-designed treatment that's essentially driven by the genomic makeup of their cancer. Uh, 
It's like if someone went into a shoe store in the past, uh, they had only one size. And it was either too big or too small, or if you were fortunate, it fit. Now we actually measure your shoe size, you know, the length and the width, and then we go back and pick out the right size that will fit when you walk out of the store. Oh, that is a paradigm shift. That's a huge change. So all along, I mean, it seems like we've heard about, you know, standardized trials, and we do all these studies to find out, well, this is the drug that works for this particular cancer. And while we're not really throwing that away, we're not looking at it that way anymore, right? Not not as much. Um, This December will be the 20th anniversary of what many of us call the first ever uh, of these precision or personalized treatments, which was when on a single day in in Gaithersburg, Maryland, where the U.S. FDA is located, on one side of the street, the anti-HER2 breast cancer drug Herceptin was approved, which had in its label that a test called the Hercept test had to be done, and only patients who tested positively would be eligible to receive the treatment. And on the other side of the street, in what's known as the Office of In Vitro Diagnostics and Implanted Devices, the FDA approved the DACO Hercep test, the actual test, but in its label it said that the test was only designed to select patients for eligibility to be treated with the anti-HER2 drug that was being approved on the same day uh, on the other side of the street. And that was 20 years ago. Exactly, December of 1998. So that was called the first companion diagnostic companion or friends. The drug and the test were friends. They worked together. They were always together. You didn't give the drug unless the test was positive, and you withheld the drug if the test was negative. Interesting. And that, wow. Well, do we, have these um, medications been around long enough to know whether they have more success using like a genomic selected medication versus yes there the, the there certainly was no question that the uh, the the overall survival of women with metastatic breast cancer that had this her2 alteration which happens about one in five about 20 percent um, if it was there and they were treated with the anti-HER2 therapies, their outcome changed dramatically. It almost became uh, better to have the HER2 positive disease at this stage rather than to have the HER2 negative because you had the opportunity to be treated with the special drug. Now, that's been repeated many, many times, and in many different types of cancers, not just breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, um, leukemia and lymphoma, all different types of cancers now have companion diagnostics, and it's growing in an enormous rate. Uh, The amount of investment from pharmaceutical companies in developing these targeted, as we call them, therapies or precision therapies is measured in the tens of billions of dollars now. This is the paradigm. And, And one of the reasons why it's so attractive to the, to the pharmaceutical companies is when you can match a patient's cancer driven by a, a certain abnormal gene to a drug that particularly is effective when that alteration is present, the patient often transitions from what's an acute and possibly fatal disease into a cr- chronic and livable disease and the drug is in what's known as maintenance, meaning the patient never goes off but lives months or years or tens of years while still on the drug. 
which makes that, of course, very attractive to drug makers because in the past, cancer drugs were only effective for a very short period of time, and so you didn't get to sell them to the patients for very long. But now the same drugs are being used for the patient for years, and now the pharmaceutical company makes a substantial profit because of that. And it turns it into a chronic condition. I, I would say the day before the her, her two and her septin approvals came, cancer was the least popular disease for drug makers to make drugs against. It just wasn't very profitable. The patients just didn't live long enough. Now cancer is the number one disease that the major pharmaceutical companies are making drugs against because they almost all that get approved become billion-dollar bestsellers. Now, is, when we talk about precision medicine, is it always a, to a pharmaceutical treatment? Or, or, I mean, what about radiation or surgery? Are those part of the equation still? Or so, no? certainly by far the most direct application from learning the genomic underpinnings of a patient's cancer by sequencing the DNA that's taken out of their cancer cells applies to medical oncology, to anti-cancer drugs that are, that are ordered and administered by medical oncologists. There are some applications for radiation oncology, and more are emerging, and this is particularly true of the use of immunotherapy, the newest uh, type of anti-cancer therapy that also is precision-driven and personalized by DNA sequencing of patients' cancer. Radiation treatments are starting to be used for patients to boost their ability to respond to immunotherapy. The radiation is given to increase the number of mutations in the patient's cancer, which will then immunize the patient against their own cancer. And then when the immunotherapy drugs are given, the patient starts to reject their own cancer like it was a transplanted organ from an unrelated wow. donor. So it boosts their immune it system. So, they, wow. so it's getting impacted. Surgical oncology, a bit less so. Um, for patients with early stage cancer, surgery remains, without any question, the cornerstone first attempt to cure the disease. What I'm talking about is essentially people who can't be cured by the surgeon. If they're cured by the surgeon, they don't need precision therapy anymore or personalized therapy anymore. Their disease has been removed. So this is really only for patients in whom, unfortunately, they presented too early and the surgeon couldn't cure them when they first had symptoms, or they had surgery and an attempted cure, but unfortunately they relapsed and now need medical treatment. Is the site of origin still important, or are we changing what's what matters for That's diagnosis? That's a wonderful question. For early stage cancer, cancer diagnosed before it has spread, site of origin is critical because that directs the surgeon to where they can remove the disease and prevent the patient from suffering a relapse or have it spread to other sites. But once the disease has spread uh, to multiple sites or throughout the body, the original site of origin is becoming less important than it used to be. Uh, certainly there are some cancer types where finding site of origin is critical for people with metastatic disease, and that would especially be women with breast cancer and men with prostate cancer because hormonal therapy is effective for those patients, whereas it isn't for 
cancers of non-breast or non-prostate. After that, this is where we're starting to think that it's the genomic drivers that are more important than the site of origin. Last uh, May, for the first time in history, May of 2017, the US FDA for the first time approved an anti-cancer drug that was agnostic as to the site of origin, which was the term the FDA used. It meant the patient's cancer could have started anywhere. Could be a brain tumor, a breast cancer, a colon cancer. Could be prostate or lung or pancreas. It didn't matter as long as they had this condition called microsatellite instability high, which to translate that means a cancer whose DNA is very unstable and constantly mutating and easily being broken by just about anything. They are very sensitive to immunotherapy because as their DNA constantly mutates, they make proteins from the mutations and those immunize themselves against their own cancer. So then when they get the immunotherapy drug that releases their uh, rejecting cells, they get a dramatic and long-term uh, uh, response. So that's called MSI high, and that one does not require that you know where the cancer started. We think there'll be at least one more in the next few months, and we call them pan-cancer approvals, uh, meaning all cancer types, doesn't matter what type, just as long as they have this genomic alteration, like MSA high, the next one's going to be called NTRAK, N-T-R-K. Any patient with an NTRAK mutation is going to be eligible to receive an NTRAK drug, which is dramatically effective for, the, for those patients. And it won't matter whether it's lung cancer or any other kind of cancer. As you talk about um, dividing cancers into genomic drivers, it makes me wonder um, how that's going to impact screening. Um, colonoscopies, pap smears, mammograms, will those matter in the future? Well, the current use of the cancer genomics has been for patients with established cancers. So it hasn't been used to try to detect a the disease early, except in the research setting. Oh, okay. But in the research setting, there are uh, universities and for-profit companies at early, in, early and late stages uh, that are trying to use ultra-sensitive techniques to detect circulating mutations in blood before the patient has any symptoms you, or when the uh, disease that used to present as advanced, we can now detect it as early and, and, and operate and cure the patient. Uh, diseases like ovarian cancer or possibly pancreatic cancer or lung cancer. So we are trying to apply the same techniques for screening, but they're far, far behind the applications for established cancer. But that may be in the future. It, it will be in the future. Why? Well, tell me about liquid biopsies. So the liquid biopsy is a blood test uh, very much the same as other blood tests when you start out. But instead of measuring chemi chemicals or looking at the red cells and white blood cells, the kind of things we normally do with blood samples for diagnostics, instead we do DNA and RNA sequencing the same way we do with tissues. We extract from the liquid sample all the DNA and sometimes the RNA, but mostly the DNA that's 
in the blood and try to use it to help us guide treatment the same way we do when we have the actual tissue sample from the patient's cancer. So does this take the place of a surgical biopsy? It's not ready to do that yet. It has technical limitations. Um, the amount of circulating DNA, which we sometimes call cell-free DNA, or circulating tumor DNA, is minute. There's so little there that the ability of the test to do deep, elaborate evaluations is not as good as when you have a tissue sample that has far more cancer DNA in it. But some patients, getting a sample is very risky. Um, the, the, the feeling is go after it in the blood first, and if you don't get it, then maybe then try to get the tissue. But save them the procedure, uh, the cost of the procedure, and the risk of the procedure, and try blood first. It's particularly good for patients who have had the identification of a mutation in the past and been put on one of these targeted or precision therapies. Perhaps they did well for a year or, or two and now their disease has started to grow again. That usually means they've developed a new resistance mutation that's making the drug they're on not work anymore. But before we can be certain of that, we need to see that resistance mutation. The blood sample or liquid biopsy is an excellent way to detect that. And for lung cancer patients, one of the classic examples of this, they have a mutation in a gene called EGFR, or epidermal growth factor receptor. In the United States, we may see that in 10 to 15 percent of all our lung cancers. Um, it's much more common in Americans of Asian descent. In China, 60% of lung mm. cancer has EGFR mutations. So it's pretty frequent. You put the patient on an anti-EGFR drug. It's called a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Uh, examples are the drugs erlotinib, gefitinib, and afatinib. And they will work really well for some period of time. But a specific mutation called the T790M occurs and it stops those drugs from working. But later on, another drug was developed that targets the T790M mutation. So when a patient's cancer that's EGFR driven responds to the first EGFR inhibitor, but then progresses, we go and look for T790M. And it explains about 60 to 70% of the new progression of the disease. And you can detect it in the blood about 75% of the time. So why get a new biopsy when the blood's going to give you the answer three times out of four? Sure. So we always start with that. And that's an example of how we're using liquid biopsy right now. Interesting. Well, it's fascinating. I appreciate you being here. My guest has been Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Ross, a professor of pathology and neurology at Upstate and the medical director for Foundation Medicine Incorporated in Cambridge, Mass. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, Linguistics and Healthcare. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. In the studio today, we have a guest from Syracuse University. Professor Tej Bhatia is a professor of linguistics and director of South Asian languages at Syracuse University. He's going to talk about some projects he's involved with that might help in the prediction of heart attack and stroke. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Amber. So tell me um, what you what what you do at Syracuse University. Well, I actually, you know, the, I'm also the part of forensic sciences program. So you're I, also involved in forensics. That's right. Okay. You know, forensic, you know, so faculty fellow in forensic sciences and National Security Institute. So I teach I, I teach courses such as you know, the forensic linguistics. Mm. So basically, the idea behind that one is what, how language can be used as an evidence or as evidence to track criminals huh. and also to you know, sort of threat assessments, you know, the, you know, trauma. So these are some of the things we deal with that. Interesting. Now, uh, a linguist is not necessarily someone who has fluency in multiple languages. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, that's a myth about linguists. The the moment we say we are, you know, I am in linguistics or I'm a linguist, the next question you hear from your listener, well, how many languages do you speak? Well, actually, that's not our expertise. We distinguish between bilinguals, multilinguals, and linguists. Linguists are the ones who look at the biological basis of human communication. So we build universal typologies, for example. We don't need to know languages, but based on conceptual framework or biological basis of human communication, we can build universal typology. So just to give you an example, if there are 6,000 languages in the world, brain will give you three or four you know, communicative or communication options. So that's how we look at it. Another one, for example, if you ask us to talk about the you know, sound system of the languages of the world, we will look at that, how the phonation processes work. Like and, biologically, you know, you in, biologically your, in your body. And that's right. You know, the, and how you, would, you, know, you create multiple you know, the, a sort of you know, wind, you know, you know, pipes, with wind pipes. Vocal and cords, vocal tongue, cords and all that. So we don't need to go around the world and you know, the search for every possible sound in every possible language, but based based on our conceptual framework or scientific framework, we can predict basically or we can account for the inventory of natural sound in human languages. So it's more about the sound than the um, origins of words? Well, you know, that, that's also one part, you know, part of, you know, the linguistics because, you know, also beyond, you know, beside, you know, biological basis, also there are social psychological basis of human communication. So the culture and the history also plays a very important role in, in the evolution of human languages. So we look at that, you know, the, how the words come into history of words and what they tell us about society. Okay, interesting. Well, um, what does linguistics have to do with healthcare? What connections do well, you see? Well, the healthcare, the connection is this one, you know, because you know the language, you know, the is you know the language is a window to the human mind, and healthcare is you know where like for example cases of trauma, normal communication, and some kind of impaired communication, or tra- trauma type of communication or traumatic 
communication. Linguists can provide you a quite a bit of you know insights on the way the mind is working. So, for example, in the case of you know the well, you know the serial bombers, their writing can tell us what what is happening in their mind. You were mentioning you were you were involved in some of the research or looking at the Unabomber. That's Ted, right, Ted yeah. Kaczynski. Yeah. So, so you know, the, uh, yes, you know, the, I was commissioned by you know, the you know, uh, Alfred Foundation you know, to write uh, write an article on this, and basically, you know, the, we talked about how the conceptual framework, un, you know, well, the linguist can ta- tap unconscious and conscious knowledge based on you know the analysis of conscious knowledge or unconscious knowledge in the brain and how human beings use language, we can construct, uh, you know, that we can get insights into that, what type of trauma the person is going through. And further, you know, we can use that evidence, you know, the, to, you know, identify in some cases, like in the case of, you know, Unibomber, the key evidence came from language. The way two phrases he used, you know, Ted Kaczynski used, which really, you know, left his linguistic fingerprints mm, on his writing. And based on that one, or FBI, you know, that, that provided clue to FBI about the identity of Unibomber. That was not the only evidence. Evidence was further supplemented by family, and family also vouched for these ling- that were linguistic, special or individual linguistic traits of Unibomber. But he was <coughs> communicating in a way that was unique to to him. Oh, yeah, unconsciously. Unconsciously. He did not want to leave any trace of his writing. He, he, and, but you know, in his manifesto. Out of 40,000 or somewhere, there were only two places where you, he ends up making Freudian, huh. Freudian slip and which gave away uh, yes, his identity or his uniqueness of his writing. Yeah. Um, some of what you say makes me think of a, a psychologist or psychiatrist analyzing how a person is communicating. Yes. Um, have you looked at um, communications in healthcare between... Uh, patients and caregivers? I, caregivers, I have not looked at it, but I've looked at some of the in special populations such as schizophrenia. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, the, and other, you know, one of the projects, you know, we are in, engaged in at Syracuse University. It's not my individual project, but it's a group project in which we are trying to see whether based on linguistic traits we can predict the possibility of heart attack. The hypothesis is very clear that, well, look, if there is some kind of stress or trauma mm, or some kind of some physical malfunction, uh, you know, the anatomical malfunction, or you know, the heart is impaired in some sense, it is going to take you know, the effect. It will be reflected in the linguistic treat of the patient. So some of those things, and uh, in other cases, again, uh, schizophrenia, for example, mm, language can provide us quite a bit of you know, evidence about what's going on in the mind of the person. So how the person is thinking, uh, what is his worldview? For example, how that person thinks about what's his notion of self or identity for this patient. 
or what happens, you know, the, how he perceives others, you know, the, so on a simple matter such as, you know, intelligibility, well, my, you know, the, uh, you know, my work with schizophrenic patients, it reveals that, you know, sometimes schizophrenic you know, patients, they think mostly not so-called normal people, they have no ability to understand them. So they cannot, they, you know, they cannot understand their speech. They have to have somebody else, some other intermediary, maybe you know, the, some power outside this world, godly power, or some kind of you know, the, very, the people with hyper-empathy. Mm, they can interpret their messages. Otherwise, human beings don't have that type of empathy to interpret their messages. You say empathy. Is it is it patience, or do I mean do people have the ability and they just don't have the patience, or their perception is you know, the patient perception is that uh, ordinary listeners, mm, a normal so-called normal people with normal brain, they don't have the ability. They don't have empathy towards you know, the schizophrenia, they don't understand what they go through. As a result, you know, that they cannot understand. They, they do not have empathy to understand what they are seeing. So it's a hopeless case. You cannot talk with them. So really, that's uh, if there's no way to communicate with someone who has schizophrenia in a way that, that they'll be able to understand... That makes it difficult to... It does make makes it difficult because sometimes, you know, the, again, schizophrenia is a very complex subject. You know, there are different types of schizophrenia. Some will say only the voices, external voices outside this world can understand them. The others will say, yes, within some voices within me can understand, I can understand. But in order to understand, others to understand, perhaps, you know, they, they can, you know, the... They, if they have empathy, if they in the sort of therapeutic sessions, you know, if you are talking with them, and if the person talking with them, you can establish, or the patient can establish some kind of identity, some kind of relationship, you know, the relations with the, uh, say, the interviewer, mm, or the, um, you know, the normal person. Perhaps they can open up. Many times I have seen, you know, the, you know, during my interviews with schizophrenic patients, you know, if they can become very social with you, they will invite you for tea and coffee and simply begin to think along the lines that my word and your word is the same. So, for example, they will throw 20 different names and, and will assume that we know, or I know, if I'm talking with them, I know those people and we have this shared link. So they establish their identity very different, differently, and then from there they begin to look at the world, begin to you know, tell about themselves very differently. So in other words, they found in, in cases when they can find an empath, empathic you know, the, a listener, they can begin to, their way of talking with them begins to change. Hmm. Interesting. Now, how does that uh, relate to, you were talking about predicting the possibility of a heart attack. Are heart you attack. saying that people who go on so, to have heart attacks change the way they communicate prior to that? or you know, Well, you know, because if you take the case of normal people, if you're, we don't have any heart problem or something, our you know, the speech will be so-called at least 
normal. But if there is some kind of you know, biological you know, dysfunction, then your intonation pattern, maybe some of the structures begin to you know, the, begin to be impaired. So in some cases, blood flow. Language has to do with some blood flow to the brain. If the blood flow, flow is you know, somewhat disrupted, naturally this is going to take toll on speech of that one. And the other aspect of this one is also well, in some cases, it you know, is a sort of aggression. In some cases, you'll, you'll find you know, the aggression. So they begin to talk. You know, the, you know, the, they, they are the ones, you know, the, the population which is likely to have some kind of you know, heart, heart attack. So their speech will be different in that sense, you know, that you know, they believe that... You know, you can find linguistic trait in their speech and the form of some aggression, huh. which is different from aggression you will come across in normal cases. So we are trying to look into that one, not only this, but in the case of depression also. So what, in what way the speech of the depressed patient is different from its speech of normal person? Is it fragmented or not fragmented? How in sentiment, in intensity of sentiments is reflected in their speech. So those are some other things. Will. Wow. Well, that is interesting. I want to uh, hear more about that as your research progresses. Mm -hmm. But I want to thank you for being here uh, to talk about this. My guest has been Syracuse University Linguistics Professor Tej Bhatia. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Medicine knows the importance of family, how it can influence and promote healing, hope, and energy. Deirdre Hennings is a writer who became a caregiver for her husband after his bone marrow transplant. Her short but powerful poem moves us from depression to joy and is itself a joy to hear. This is like a weary anhinga. Its body still submerged, my spirit peers over your swamp of ever-changing pills, compression socks that don't quite work, eye drops that redden when they should relax, viscous lidocaine that deadens mouth ulcers so you can eat. I struggle to move, fixate on petty details, claim nothing is going right, until your eyes twinkle with the same old mischief you reach under my shirt, crow, loose nipple syndrome, and tweak my knobs, fine-tuning a frequency we both still hear, and with one great flap, the bird inside me soars. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about how to deal with back pain. 
If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.